Ready, Freddy? Yeah. Hi, guys. Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. Thanks so much for listening. First, Gabe and I talk about some current events and some headlines. Then I play an interview I did with Thomas Frank, author of Listen Liberal and What's the Matter with Kansas. Make sure you join our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. You'll get access to all sorts of goodies, extra interviews, extended interviews for this week. You get some extra interview I did with Thomas Frank. And for that, just go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Then we have a special treat where we play the audio to the video that Nando Villa, correspondent and producer for Fusion, friend of the show, did that explains why the Democrats made a really big mistake pouring so much money into the Georgia congressional race. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm your host, Katie Helper, surprisingly enough, and I'm here with... What's up, fam? It's me, Gabe Pacheco. What up, fam? What up, the? What up, gangsta? That's a little... Who's, that's 50 Cent, I believe. You can always hear the Katie Helper Show every Wednesday on WBAI. That's WBAI.org, 99.5 FM on the radio. Oh. I'm really feeling musical today. Yeah, you're humming all the tunes. I'm humming all the tunes. And, of course, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, where you got to rate and review us. You just got to do it. Please. I mean, it's really the only way that we get pushed up in the uh, rankings. You got to review yeah, us. Yeah, we need a push-up. You need to be our push-up, brah. Uh, that's the only way we're going to get exposure to even more people. And if you love the show and you think that your friends should listen, then rate and review us because then they'll have an opportunity to see right. that the show exists. Right. You are our support. You are. I really like this bra metaphor. You provide us with our cleavage. Give us the platform. Give he, Gabe is not having it. He's like <laughs> not going to go with this as an analogy or metaphor. You got what? What'd you say? Where the Give push us, up wrong? Yeah, they need All to right. push us up. Yeah, come on, corset style. <laughs> Get Victorian with it. Get Victorian with it. I like it. No, 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 no. Help us defy gravity. It has to be underwire. Let's not pretend that non-underwire is. Do you know the difference, Gabe? No, between underwire and underwire. No. So didn't they used to make corsets out of wood, like uh, no. George Washington's teeth? <laughs> they literally made them with George Washington's teeth. They took dead presidents, not yeah. the, not the group. But the dead presidents and made no. I'm kidding. They made them out of whale baleen. I think is that what's called baleen? We'll call it that. It sounds right. The famous Dolly Parton song. Jolene, 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 Jolene. I'm begging of you, please don't take my man. Baleen. That's whale ivory. Isn't it teeth? Yeah, ivory teeth. Same and it thing. has some hair stuff. I don't even know. We, you know what, listeners? When we finally go live, we're gonna have a. I only read the first chapter of Moby Dick, so I can't tell you oh. much else about whaling. You know what? That's a chapter more than I've read. True confession. We should have an episode where all we do is like confess to things that we haven't read or movies that we haven't seen. That I've are never part of the read canon. Infinite Jest. Me neither. But that's more recent. Let's see. I read um, Anna Karenina. I read the Dostoevsky. Crime and Punishment. Yeah. But I feel like there are a lot of classics. I think I took um, one of those complimentary Bibles from a hotel once 
and uh, I didn't read that. I thought I would. I if, cracked it open, and it was just like a list of people who begat people. A listicle? Yeah, and I was like, I, I could care less. Like 10 people who begat people. Right. However many years it's ago. It's poorly written. Yeah, it's pretty, yeah. Aramaic doesn't flow so well into uh, to, uh, English. By the way, this week was Salvador Allende's birthday. Oh, man. My favorite Chilean president. Me who too. was elected and uh, deposed on September 11th. Yeah, 1973. Yes, just check that. By the uh, U.S.-backed junta. What do you say, junta or junta? That sounds pretentious, but yes, the coup. He was born in 1908, June 26th. Funny, the DSA, I don't remember which DSA, one of the DSAs on Twitter wished him a happy birthday, and they translated something he had said where this was like his last speech. Is that a last will and testament, or is that when you're literally leaving your will? I guess. I mean, we call it an auto-eulogy. We could call oh, it Oh, a... auto. I thought you meant O-T-T-O, but you mean auto-A-U-T-O, yeah. So he gave his last speech, and it's really sad because I'm pretty sure he shot himself. We think. I mean, in the it, there's a fog of war. Yeah, element there is to this, a fog of war. Fog they, of coup, if you will. They bombed the White House, and uh, he he was dead. They offered to take him out, but they also he knew that they'd kill him. And in fact, I think there's recording of this should be our the the the. the approximate radio hour where we're like i think what happened was but i think there was recording of them saying like we'll take him out and then drop him into the sea and if that's not right i'll just delete it right you know there's a movie on netflix called oh, okay. allende oh really is it doc or no narrative? it's his last day in the white house so it's a perfect uh like a compendium p is like it's a perfect a uh, movie that uh, if you after you've seen uh, Downfall, I was which is say, like it's the Chilean Downfall, right? Yeah, Hitler's last days in the bunker, but totally different because Hitler was fighting for uh, national socialism and sort of uh, eugenics and genocide, right. and Allende was de democratically elected and and for uh, you know starting Head Start programs for kids, right? And like food for Free soup for... kitchen type things, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and nonviolent, sure... <laughs> right? Nonviolent. He was a hundred percent nonviolent, which was again. Uh, a big mistake. Yeah. Because there's a scene in Allende where one of his um, secretaries says, uh, hey, um, he tells the secretary, don't worry, the people will, will stand up to the army and uh, stop them from invading the White House. And his secretary says, uh, how? You took away their guns. Right. Uh, which is why we on the left should not tell people to give up their guns. Well... Gun control is uh, is uh, is a problem. Yes, but I would argue that, like we were saying last week, you know, there is a difference between 1973 Chile and present day United States. Like we're so the police force is so militarized. So I'm not saying take away people's guns per se, but I am saying that's not a good model for us to pursue. There's no power without the threat of force behind it. Right, but we have like a water gun, and they have a. An they a have bomb. drones. Yeah, drones. Yeah, they have laser. They have a. Uh, yeah, they have lasers. And that's kind of what we said a couple episodes ago. It's interesting. What did he think would happen? Like that they would take the bread or the soup. They'd like throw hot soup in the faces of uh, of the generals, since he did give the people like soup and yeah. food, just like held up loaves of bread. I don't know. I feel bad. I shouldn't really be making fun of Allende and his commitment to nonviolence. Well, I mean, he uh, he he ended up on T-shirts, and we all like him today in right. the same way that every nonviolent protester is lionized after they're killed by the state. You know, it's unfortunate. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? 
anyway, so uh, yeah. So anyway, in his last uh, in his last speech, which he d- delivered from the Casa Moneda, the White House equivalent there, he said uh, the DSA tweeted this this quote. I say to the people that I am certain that the seed which we planted in the conscience of thousands and sa- thousands of Chileans will not be shriveled forever. And I don't think shriveled is the right word at I all. I guess, man. Chileans loved Pinochet afterwards. I was there a couple years ago, and I talked to some guy uh, who lived in a gated community out there. And I said, how did you guys feel about the time uh, when you when you couldn't go out after dark? And he was like, well, you know, only the only people that like to go out at, at night are criminals. Right. So uh, if you're not a criminal... What what reason do you have to go out uh, when it's dark? Yeah, they say that about Spain, too. And, uh, you know, so uh, there are a lot of people out there that are just lame. Yes. And uh, lame people like fascists because they make them feel safe. Right. That's true. And confirmed. But isn't that ironic? He killed himself with a gun. I wonder where he got that. Yeah. Did they? Was it? This was an unregistered firearm? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, actually, I just found a website, the Future of Freedom Foundation, like a right-wing libertarian thing, and they have a piece by uh, Jacob H. Hornber- Hornberger. And, um, That's a strong last name. I know. It's really strong. And uh, I feel like I'm pregnant. I just got pregnant by this guy. He has a piece called Chile's Gun Control Lesson for Americans. Although the nation of Chile lies some 5,000 miles away from the United States, its history holds a valuable lesson for the American people in gun control. Break it down. Before Americans permit their government officials to take their so-called military-style guns away from them, they would be wise to reflect on what happened in Chile more than 40 years ago. In 1970, Chile elected Salvador Allende to the presidency. It had been an extremely tight three-man race, with Allende securing 36.63% of the vote against the second-place candidate, Jorge Alessandri who garnered 35.29%. Since none of the candidates had received a majority under Chile's electoral rules, the Congress would decide who would be president under a long-established tradition of electing the person with the most votes. Okay, that's not that weird. That sounds like democracy. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like majority, (laughs) right? Yeah. Congress chose Allende to be president of Chile. It's like in under the uniquely Chilean, under the anomalous Chilean system... Uh, Allende's election marked the culmination of a remarkable political journey. A physician, he had also run unsuccessfully for the presidency in 1952, 58, 64. Mo- wow. So right? he was like one persistent. of these, like, yeah, he persisted. Yet he persisted, exactly. Yeah, and they think like Elizabeth Warren had it hard, whatever. Most notably, Allende was a Marxist, a man who firmly believed in socialism and communism. As such, on his election in 1970, his administration began implementing or expanding socialist economic programs and policies. In June 1973, a small contingent of Chile's standing army attempted a coup that was quickly aborted. Given the increasing concern over the possibility of a military coup, Allende's supporters began asking for guns. However, Allende did not abandon Chile's system of gun control. Chilean people, like so many others around the world, were obviously prohibited from owning guns. The only people who would be permitted to continue owning and possessing guns were the military and the police. On September 11, 73, military junta led by Augusto Pinochet announced that the military was taking power in Chile. Allende's small force of armed guards was easily overwhelmed by Chile's military forces before he could be taken prisoner. Allende made a farewell speech to the Chilean people and committed suicide by shooting himself in the head. The summer before the coup, the military clearly understood how important it was to keep the citizenry disarmed, and military units were periodically raiding private establishments to conduct warrantless searches for guns. The military clearly understood that a disarmed citizenry is an obedient, meek, and cooperative citizenry under military rule. Yeah, but we we can't 
ignore the fact that uh, the United States government and United States uh, corporations Helped. were behind this coup as much as a minority of the citizenry in Chile. Right. So you had the military, but they were backed by the United States right. copper plants, copper, the copper mining companies. And there were all these corporations in the U.S. that were worried about getting nationalized. And as Nixon said, they want to make the economy scream. Yes. Naomi Klein talked about this in The Shock Doctrine, about how uh, Chile was the first uh, testing ground for uh, neoliberal economic Free market, policies. Right. Milton Friedman, Los Chicago Boys, as they called them. And torture, of course. Very innovative in torture. Totally. Really disgusting things. So, um, okay, so happy birthday, Allende. <laughs> Salvador Allende. We can play some Victor Jara. He's really, that's, he was also killed. Te recuerdo, Amanda, la calle mojada, corriendo a la fábrica donde trabajaba Manuel. La sonrisa ancha la lluvia en el pelo no importaba nada ibas a encontrarte con él con él con él con él con él son cinco minutos la vida es eterna en cinco minutos suena la sirena de vuelta al trabajo y tú caminando Lo iluminas todo, los cinco minutos. That's Victor Hara. So, so much to talk about this week. The healthcare thing is a nightmare. I, th- I think that's a fair thing to say. Oh my gosh, so scary. 20 million more people might get thrown off of uh, the healthcare rolls. Oh yeah. The Congressional Budget Office, which is nonpartisan, the CBO, uh, released an assessment on Monday that said that 22 million Americans will lose their health insurance under the Senate Republicans' health care bill just over the next decade. After that report was released, Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine and Republican Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky joined Dean Heller of Nevada in pledging to vote against even debating their party's health care bill. But here's what's hilarious. Ready? Rand Paul did that. Like, Susan Collins is fairly moderate. Rand Paul doesn't want to debate it because it's like, not aggressive enough. It, it leaves too many people insured. He wants more people to be denied health insurance. He's a doctor. I get that. You, we need to heighten the contradictions. I'm, <laughs> yeah, a, I'm on Rand Paul's side. We need to have every... Look, people need to be tuning into the Katie Hopper Show to mm-hmm. get health tips from us because they're not insured. Guys, I get it. You're not, you're not insured. This is how you stay healthy. Personal responsibility. Seven glasses of water a day, yeah. preferably filtered. Eat a bowl of leafy greens every day. Eat a fruit. Eat, Eat a, a fruit. fruit. You're, you'll be fine. Garlic. And if you're not fine, remember that it's the Republicans that are making you sick. Re- so Republicans are poisoning you. As long as the Second Amendment is in place, everybody on the left, get get what you can, get armed, and the only way that we're going to have universal health care is an armed struggle. Get it while you can. Get garlic. Get guns. Garlic, <laughs> garlic and guns. guns. And we need one more. You need to get your um, fatty omega-3s, you guys. What you need to get is is uh, your fish oil pills and some weapons. <laughs> Until this whole uh, Medicaid for everyone thing for, uh, Medicaid gets passed. For all. Right. Medicare for all. Medicare, Medicaid. For, Medicare for all, yeah. All that. The American Medical Association came out against the bill. 
they said in a letter to the Senate, they said, medicine has long operated under the precept of primum non nocere, or first do no harm. The draft legislation violates the standard on many levels. There's a study out in the annals of... <laughs> Sorry, is it anal? do, annals? But do they say annals too? I mean, like, most most people talk about anal. But are they talking about the annals of internal medicine? Did I just like totally make it pervy or do people say annals? Is this going to be on the radio? No, not. Well, yeah, but is it annals? It's annals, I guess, right? I'd I'd say annals. By the way, today I was walking Central Park. I saw two people fornicating. Annally? I don't know, but it was the scariest thing I've ever seen because they were facing each other, lying down, and during the light of day, facing each other. They were like holding on to each other, like their arms were wrapped around each other. Were they naked? Because it's no. pretty. It's intense sunlight out there. It is. I'm worried about their skin. No, they were covered. They were wearing shorts. I don't know if it was two dudes or one woman and one dude, but they. I'm not kidding. At first, I thought they were doing like couple exercises because yeah. their legs were shaking. Like yeah. doing. It was so disturbing. You thought it was like a couple's acro yoga. Yeah, exactly acro yoga. It was so disturbing. So. Anyway, there's a study out in the Annals of Internal Medicine by Steffi Woodhandler, and she was on Democracy Now! Dr. Steffi Woodhandler, professor at CUNY Hunter College, primary care physician, lecturer at Harvard Medical School, and co-founder of Physicians for a National Health Program. Tell us what you found. Uh, We reviewed the world's scientific literature on the relationship between health insurance and mortality. And there is really now a scientific consensus that being uninsured raises the death rates by between 3 and 29 percent. And the math on that is that if you uh, take health insurance away from 22 million people, uh, about 29,000 of them would die every year annually as a result. That's what we found by reviewing the literature. There was a similar review in New England Journal of Medicine. We published our own study in the Annals of Internal Medicine, which is the official organ of the American College of Physicians, the nation's largest medical specialty society. Being uninsured raises your death rate. That is established scientific consensus. Like, I thought that it was a no-brainer that the less people are insured, the more people die. But apparently, some people actually dispute that. Yeah, tell me about that. Okay, so so the, if you're uninsured, that sometimes the probability of you being healthy goes up. No, is that what you're saying? No, I mean it's you're the reason you're not getting this is because it's so obvious that we can't conceive of the fact that we have to make the point. It's like the less insured people are, the more people die per year, and there's some people who are like. No, that's not true. Is this argument coming out from the uh, Flat Earth Society, the Jesus Wrote on Dinosaurs fan club? I wanted to turn to a comment made by the Idaho Republican congressman, um, Raul Labrador, during a town hall meeting last month. Nobody dies because they don't have access to health care. Nobody dies because they don't have access to health care. Nobody dies because they don't have access to health care. Dr. Steffi Wilhandler. Well, Raul Labrador said it. Senator Ted Cruz has said that. Marco Rubio has said that. Uh, Secretary Tom Price, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, has implied that, uh, that, that you can be uninsured and nothing happens. That's simply not true. The science is showing us that if you lack health insurance, you don't get the care you need to stay healthy, and that people die earlier as a result. Duh. 
are there studies that show that when it rains, <laughs> when rain, it rains, people, people are get more wet. wet? Yeah. That's Breaking a- news: food satiates hunger. Uh, water satiates thirst. Insurance helps keep you healthy. I can't believe these people. What's wrong with them? <laughs> I thought it was like so incredibly obvious. But then Miss Eliza says, ah, but quote unquote, people live, end quote, seems like a pretty big partisan assumption when it comes to the effects of the bill. What? I don't even. Then this guy, Avic Roy, who's like a big free market dude says, I'm very open to thoughtful critiques of the Senate bill from the left. Millions will die is not it. Why isn't it it? Why isn't it it? Why is it not it? What's so crazy? I mean, that seems pretty straightforward to me. No? Nate Silver actually tweeted about this. Quote, you can't talk about people dying from losing access to health care, end quote. It might literally be the dumbest argument in the history of the Internet. And I would agree with him. Anyway. So, yeah, I would say let's call that the worst take of the week is the um, it's a bad argument to bring up that millions of people will die. I'm not sure if it's like if the bad argument is that it's like uncouth or that we don't know if the person will die or not. Well, they're like, it's not the lack of health care that's going to kill the people. It's it's going to be rapidly multiplying um, cancerous cells. Oh, they're doing like a technical argument. Yeah, it's not it's not the lack of health care. It's, you know, it's the uh, compromised immune system from the undiagnosed virus. I guess. Yeah, it's not the lack of (laughs) band-aids. Right. It's that giant gaping paper cut (laughs) To, to which so many people succumb. Some people like I this libertarian guy whose show I went on, like it's like people die in hospitals. I mean, people do die from MRSA. They yeah. die from crazy uh, antibiotic resistant yeah, bacteria. bacteria. Yeah, or C. diff, which is really horrible, or like bed sores. I think that's what um, Chris Re- Reserver Reeve wound up dying of. But uh, yeah, with bed sores, man, you got to turn people over all the time. Right. Got to keep right. turning them. You do. Like those hot like dogs gyro. in the 7 yeah. Eleven uh, hot dog warming machine right. that keep, keeps them turning. But even though that happens and it happens more than it should, like that obviously is outweighed by just not getting treated. That's correct. That is correct. Terrible take. I don't know what's wrong with people. And of course, what's beautiful about the healthcare thing is that there was a Medicare for all bill in California that was going to be a statewide thing. And the Democrat blocked it. So shout out to Democrats who that's this week. And with Democrats like these, who needs Republicans? Because I got to have faith. This week, it would have been uh, George Michael's birthday. I love R.I.P. I love uh, so June 25th would have been his 54th birthday. And he was uh, of Greek descent. Oh, yeah, he was. So him and Milo, two British Greek dudes. Yeah. And the wrong one kicked the bucket. And gay. Yes. The wrong one did kick the bucket. Did you like his music at all growing up? I like the Limp Biscuit cover of Faith. Oh, I didn't even know there was one. Yep. I love Freedom, that song Freedom. 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 I love Faith. People love Freedom. I hate I don't like Careless Whisper and I don't like Wake Me Up Before You Go Girl at all. In case you want to know. Father figure is kinda weird. I want your sex is kinda weird.
I want your sex. Who says it like that? It just sounds, yeah. I want your sex. It's very ESL. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're like, do you I wanna, want your sex. Do you want to make love? No, yeah. I want your sex. That's really funny. So, like you can get quantities of sex, just like a, a platter of right. sex. Right. Can I have some of your sex, please? Yeah. A yeah. bucket. Can I get a, a beach bucket full of your sex, please? Father figure is a really scary song. I will be your father figure. Put your tiny hand in mine. I will be your preacher feature. Anyway. That song is for orphans. Yeah. Who really should stay orphaned if the other choice is this guy. Not George Michael, but whoever sings the song. He was an amazing person. So he helped countless children uh, donating to Childline, and, and, which is a British charity, and other organizations. And he did it secretly. Anonymously, yeah. yeah. He, had, uh, he had agreements where they couldn't tell. We call that the no snitching clause. It is, it is, yeah. The non-disclosure thing or something. There was a woman who was a waitress, and he like, paid off her loans. He played free for nurses. He really appreciated nurses because his mom had cancer. So he was just a great guy. Also, want to give you some good news, which is that um, there's a coral reef that could create a lot of jobs. Australia's Great Barrier Reef is worth 42 billion, supports 64,000 jobs. Strong enough incentive to save it? Let's say yes, right? I'm going to say yes. Yeah. Uh, I really hope that they do something to save the uh, the jobs and the, and the, the coral reef because yeah. the last thing that we need here are more immigrants from Australia. It's true. Seeking jobs. It's true, yeah. And here's my interview with Thomas Frank, author of Listen Liberal and What's the Matter with Kansas at the People's Summit for the Real News Network. Hi, my name is Katie Halper. I'm the host of the Katie Halper Show on WBAI, and I'm reporting with the Real News Network live from the People's Summit in Chicago. Joining me now is Thomas Frank, the author of Listen Liberal and Whatever Happened to Kansas, and the founder of The Baffler Magazine. Thomas. Katie. Thanks for joining me. You got it, lady. I'm happy to be here. So happy to be talking to you. Now, your book, Listen Liberal, Whatever Happened to the party of the people. Yes. What did happen to the party of the people? Yeah, well, they, they took one hell of a beating, didn't they? I mean, they're, they've dwindled down to a position of complete like powerlessness on the national stage. So it's amazing how they've managed to do that. Uh, and it's largely self-inflicted. Of course, the Republicans have been the ones beating them. But what happened is that, you know, some years ago, they decided they didn't want to be the party of the people anymore. They wanted to be something different. Uh, and this involved, uh, it was enormous transition in the Democratic Party all through the 70s, all through the 80s, all through the 90s, until they are what we see them as today. They are a party that represents a uh, group of very affluent white-collar professionals. That's who leads the party, that's who they speak for, that's whose issues they, they care about. And that's really who they are. I mean, to put it really, really, really bluntly, that kind of party just can't, uh, you know, people aren't interested. The, the, the general public is just, you know, they're not excited about that. So how much does that explain Trump's victory? Uh, so it, it's in, in the details. If you dig down into the details, it explains it almost, uh, well, almost, I'd say 80%. Uh, so the, some of the, one of the issues, I'll give you an example of what I mean. Obviously, look, the, 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 the Democrats, as they moved away from the, their old working class base, 
um, and they treated them very poorly. And they did the same with other uh, essential elements of their uh, constituent groups, minorities, for example. This is in the 1990s I'm talking about here. Remember the famous sister soldier moment? Um, this was when um, Bill Clinton very famously uh, sort of contrived to insult Jesse Jackson to his face while the cameras were rolling. And uh, the reason he did it was to show to the general public that he wasn't beholden to uh, Jesse Jackson or, uh, or anybody else, any of the sort of traditional Democratic interest groups that, he, that they couldn't tell Bill Clinton what to do. And so he, it was deliberately set up uh, on purpose to do this. And uh, you'd think, well, gee, those are, you know, those are your core voters. You know, when you do something like that, that's, they're going you know, to be pretty pissed off. But that's when this, this saying would come up, well, they have nowhere else to go. What are they, they, they're not going to go vote for the Republicans. When they did that, and when they did things like got NAFTA passed, which was really hard on you know, working class people, when they did those things, they used to have a saying. They'd say, well, you know, we don't have to worry about that. Those people have nowhere else to go. Nowhere else to go. This was a democratic saying in the 1990s. Well, Trump gave those people somewhere else to go. This is the entire genius of Trump. And he did it with the trade issue specifically. Uh, and, and Hillary Clinton was uniquely vulnerable on the trade issue because uh, she had been Secretary of State, had a hand in writing trade agreements. Uh, she was a free trader. Her husband uh, got NAFTA passed and then all the other trade agreements after that. She was closely identified with these. And here's Trump uh, hammering her for it every day on the campaign trail. That really hurt her. And it hurt with, the, with one of the you know, sort of bedrock Democratic constituent groups, the working class. That's how he won. And of course, so some white working class voters went for Trump, right? And then some black voters stayed home. Stayed home. Well, they weren't excited about the Democratic candidate. Uh, it was Hillary Clinton this time. I don't know if you're aware of that. And <laughs> but she's this sort of perfect pre uh, 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 professional class candidate. She ran as a resume candidate. Uh, if you went to the Democratic convention in Philadelphia, she ran as a complete centrist. There was re many Republican speakers at the Democratic convention. There were all, a lot of moments like this. I don't know if you were there. Yeah, I but was. It, you know, uh, she ran as the you know the consensus candidate, uh, a candidate of national unity. All the leading professionals from all the different professions were arrayed around her. She is the most qualified presidential candidate ever, Barack Obama says. You know, and you know, that's not very exciting to most voters. You know, look, I voted for her, right? I'm like, okay, yeah, she's better than Trump. Anybody can see that. But for most people, that means nothing. In, in some ways, it's actively insulting to be running as like, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm the most talented person out there. I'm the most accomplished person out there. That's not, you know, it's a weird thing for a Democrat to do. I mean, look, Democrats do that all the time, but think about who the Democratic Party is. That's just a strange, you know, that offers the common people nothing. It's not even about them. Right? It's about her resume. Right. Yeah. I'm with her was the unofficial yes. yeah. slogan. Yeah. That was the official right? that was the official slogan. The un think, yeah. unofficial one was America is already great. Right. It's like, Oh my God! Right. It's total complacency. Right. You know? Yeah. It doesn't speak to anyone who's not already there or anyone right. who's That's suffering. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, what about uh, what role did the media play, if any, in handing Hillary the nomination or in defeating Bernie Sanders oh, during the primary? I have. Okay. So, I've written about uh, media bias before, and I've always poo-pooed it. I always thought it was kind of a silly idea. Well. Forget that. It it was there this time around in, in an enormous way. And so I wrote a big story for Harper's Magazine about 
uh, how the media treated Bernie Sanders. And the way I did it was to focus on one newspaper in particular and read all of their op-ed coverage of Bernie Sanders. I chose the Washington Post, and I read every op-ed story and editorial that they ran that mentioned Bernie Sanders. And it was five to one against him. I mean, they hated this guy, hated him made fun of the way he looks, you know, uh, made fun of the way he talks, uh, made fun of his supporters, made fun of his issues in a really cruel a, a way that was totally incommensurate with who the man is. I mean, he's a nice person. He's an avuncular. He's a friendly. It's hard to dislike Bernie Sanders. Well, they did, man. They hated him. And so then the question is, and the New York Times is very similar, then the question is why? And the, the answer is that, and they, they did the same with Trump, of course. I think Trump deserved it more, but uh, there's a, I don't even know if there were any newspapers in America that endorsed Trump. Uh, you know, the media was... The KKK. Or something. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, things like that. Right. But the, yeah, no, the, the, the mainstream media absolutely uh, loved Hillary Clinton, absolutely adored her without reservation. Why? You, you think about it for a minute and you realize it's just basic class solidarity. That resume stuff, that's them. You know, your East Coast sort of media elite, they go to this, they went to the same sort of school that she did. They, you know, a lot of them know her personally. They went to, you know, they have the same life uh, trajectory, the same aspirations, the same demographics. Uh, they look at Hillary Clinton as one of their own. This was someone that they absolutely adored. Now, I voted for, as I said, I voted for Hillary in the end as well. but. When you do that, when you are just so absolutely in love with a candidate like they were with Hillary Clinton, it blinds you to all sorts of things that you should be picking up on. And uh, like, you know, I wrote a whole bunch of stories during the uh, race about Donald Trump and about his supporters and about what was going on. I had to write those for a British publication. I couldn't write them here in this country because they were so infatuated with Hillary Clinton. Right. And, then and I, I mean, and they really were. This is true. <laughs> and they then, still are. Right. They still have the I'm with her in yeah, their but Twitter like, bios. And then they say yeah. that Sanders supporters have a messiah complex. Well, well I, I, the bitterness towards the Sanders supporters is like still, hey, look, Bernie Sanders was a good soldier. He did his duty. He endorsed after he lost. He endorsed her. You know, he did what he was supposed to do. And to still be pissed off at him, it's like it's like they're pissed off at democracy itself. Like, yes, you can you can challenge the front runner. That's permitted. Oh, my <laughs> favorite moment, one know? of my favorite moments during the primary was when a New York Times reporter asked Bernie Sanders what he had to say to the people who thought it was sexist of him to not drop out because he was standing <laughs> yeah, in the way yeah. of history, preventing the first female in the way of history by, Yeah, by raising a challenge. Well, it's like, wow. I want to ask her, if she was standing in the way of history and being an anti-Semite yeah. by preventing the election of the first Jewish guy. Arguably, arguably all of this backfired. This, I mean, they, they loved Hillary so much that they were completely blind to what was coming right around the corner. Right. Or they didn't hold her feet to the fire or pressure her exactly. to move in any of the directions Look, that would have made her more electable, like with the fight for 15. There you go. I mean, this, the, the, the total complacency that I just described. The, 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 she ran a terrible campaign. Terrible. Yes, that, why are you such a, a racist misogynist, Tom Frank? <laughs> yeah. Because to, to point out yeah, that she yeah. ran a she yeah, ran a lousy per, campaign. Yeah, well, look, she sexist. could have run a good campaign. It's sexist to think Had she, she ever run it, mistakes. But she lost. Had she run a good campaign, she would have won. It's that simple. Anyhow. What are the takeaways? Because lots of people, coincidentally, the ones who uh, continue to bash Bernie Sanders um, and praise Hillary Clinton, lots of them are saying, oh, we can't look back now. We have to look forward. We have to defeat Trump. I think, kind of traditionally, you do a post mortem to figure yeah. out how to move yeah. forward. 
Yes, and the, uh, look, the Democratic, you know, I wrote a big book about the Democratic Party. That's what we're here to talk Listen about. Liberal. came out well before, it came out in March of last year, well before the election. Um, if the Democratic Party has had postmortems, you know, they haven't contacted me. <laughs> they, you know, they, they, here's the big book about what went wrong with the Democratic Party. They're not interested. Which is more important, what the Democratic Party did or what Russia allegedly did? And which does the DNC have more control over? Well, look, there's two Russia stories. One is the one that's unfolding right now before our eyes, which is fascinating, you know, with, uh, with, uh, with, with Comey and with uh, uh, General Flynn and all of this stuff. And, and uh, you know, we have no idea where that's going or what, that's, what that is going to turn out to be. Uh, the other Russia story, the idea that Russia somehow uh, uh, tipped the election to Trump by, uh, you know, with the, uh, with the Podesta emails, uh, that is false, in my opinion. There are many, 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 many reasons that Hillary Clinton lost, and that one is, in my view, pretty far down the list. You want to hear some things that are much? I think yes. I think the uh, Comey, uh, the Comey yeah. memo, by the way, is was had a much bigger impact. I think the fact that they raised Obamacare premiums two weeks before election day had an enormous impact, and the Democrats will not talk about that. Just imagine this for a second, Katie Halper. Would Lyndon Johnson have done that? <laughs> like right before the election, it's like raise everybody's insurance premiums in America. How about Obama pushing the Trans-Pacific Partnership all through the election while poor Hillary is trying to backpedal out of it and like, oh, I've changed my mind about it. I'm not in favor of it anymore. And Obama's like, yeah, we're going to pass it anyway. And went on it's the like, Jimmy Fallon show. What was he thinking? Show yes, and boasted about it. it. And, and it's like, it's like it, yeah. this was this was just bad. I mean, in these, by the way, all of these are tactical. These right. are all forget, tactical, right. strategic. Or whatever. Right. And, and as long as you're For saying, now. okay, well, what were the tactical blunders? Oh my God, look at Trump's. Look at Trump's, the Access Hollywood tape, insulting the parents of that kid killed um, in Iraq, insulting the judge, making fun of handicapped people, going down the list of ethnic groups and making fun of them all. He was equal opportunity If, if you can, If you get to say, crazy. you know, oh, we'll take away what, what, you know, what Hillary did, you know, a tactical blunder that Hillary made or that happened to the Democrats, well, look, this guy had a lot, of, lot more tactical blunders. There's obviously, I mean, in terms of tactical blunders, this guy's the worst we've ever seen. Right. Strategic is the question. There's a level above this. You know, we're talking about the uh, uh, the issues, the way these these candidates appeal to people, the big, the real nature of politics. Democrats do not want to talk about that, and that's what we have to look at if you want to look. One more point, Katie Halper. Yes, Thomas Frank. Trumpism is not going away. Trump himself may get impeached. He may resign. Uh, you know, who knows? Right. But the Republicans now understand that they know how to beat the Democratic Party. And Trump, if anything, was a very flawed bearer of this message. He's like one of the worst candidates we've ever seen, and he still won. Well, look, they now know, they can see what he did to beat the Democrats. They're not going to give up on that. The next Trump is going to be someone that's actually good at it. Okay, so if they don't figure out what's going on here in a grand strategic sense, the Democrats, I mean, they're in huge trouble. So what do they have to figure out? What do they have to do to to kill, to defeat Trumpism? Well, how do you, I mean, for God's sakes, how do Democrats lose Pennsylvania, Ohio, Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan? That's a catastrophe. They better figure out how and why that happened and what they're going to do differently. Look at inequality in this country. Look at the power of Wall Street. Look at what Silicon Valley is doing to the economy. People are outraged about these things. The, the idea that a left party can't win, that a left party is in a state of historic defeat right now when the country is screaming out for the things that, that the Democrats used to offer. You know, that's, that is screwy. How, I mean, it's, it's, it, it should be easy for them to win and instead they're wiped out. 
And they're going in the wrong direction, it yep. looks like. They're not going towards Flight 415. Any lessons, any important takeaways from England? Uh, yes, I, I just came back from England. I uh, interviewed a lot of voters, a lot of uh, political candidates uh, right before the election. Absolutely a fascinating place. You know, they use the word socialist there and nobody is shocked. And it's like, uh, they think that's normal to right. talk about people right. being, I, I heard many people self-identify as socialists. I interviewed people from the uh, UKIP party, which is this, we think of it as a right-wing party. That's a, they, they're the ones that sort of masterminded the Brexit. But the guys I interviewed were like, one of them was a Bernie Sanders supporter. So like Sanders obviously would have beaten Trump in the election, you know, much better candidate than Hillary. Uh, I, you know, another one I interviewed was very far to the left. Fascinating country, fascinating people. Um, and. The thing that I came away with that, this is what blows my mind about England, is the sense of social solidarity that they have that we do not. The sense that at the end, at the end of the day, English people will all look after each other, you know, and make sure that you don't die penniless in a hovel somewhere, right? And what a bunch of reds. <laughs> <laughs> Gulag Central. Oh, anyway, we have to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Thomas Frank. To hear the rest of that interview, please go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And here's Nando Villa, correspondent and producer for Fusion, explaining why the Democrats made a mistake putting so much money into the Georgia congressional race that they, of course, lost. The Democrats have a very clear strategy to take the country back in 2018 but they just showed how disastrous that strategy actually is in their recent loss in Georgia's special election. In that runoff election for Georgia's 6th District, Democrat John Ossoff lost to Republican Karen Handel, despite the fact that the Democrats poured more money into that race than they ever have in a House election ever. They really, really wanted this one because they saw it as a referendum on Trump's presidency so far but also because they saw it as the perfect test case for their electoral strategy. That strategy was outlined by Chuck Schumer, the most powerful Democrat in the Senate. For every blue-collar Democrat we will lose in Western PA, we will pick up two, three uh, moderate Republicans in the suburbs of Philadelphia. But who lives in these suburbs? The new battleground of American politics are these suburbs where affluent, white, college-educated Republican voters who are uncomfortable with Donald Trump. The problem is that these rich suburban white voters are the most reactionary people in America today. Think used car dealership owners who believe all the Fox News conspiracies about the Black Panther Party organizing to turn Christmas gay, but crucially are also rich enough to benefit greatly from Republican tax cuts. At the end of the day, they know that the Republicans are always going to be much more reliable on the one issue they actually care about, tax cuts for themselves. So unless the Democrats want to become indistinguishable from Republicans when it comes to taxes, they're going to have to find another way to win. One way would be what those in the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party want, a populist message on economic issues that appeals to the broad working class. You know, things like Medicare for all and taxes on the wealthy. Here's what Bernie himself said in a New York Times op-ed aptly titled, How Democrats Can Stop Losing Elections. The Democrats must develop an agenda that speaks to the pain of tens of millions of families who are working longer hours for lower wages, and to the young people who, unless we turn the economy around, will have a lower standard of living than their parents. Too many in our party cling to an overly cautious, centrist ideology. This strategy was tried in two other special elections earlier this year, in Kansas and Montana. James Thompson and Rob Quist both ran as economic populists in the Bernie mold. Neither candidate got significant support from the DNC. A good way to see how they did is to compare their results with how those same areas voted in the presidential election back in November. Kansas's 4th District voted for Trump over Hillary Clinton by 27 points. James Thompson lost to his Republican opponent there by 7. 
In Montana, Trump won by 20 points, while Rob Quist lost by six. So both saw double-digit point swings in favor of the Democrats in just a couple of months. Pretty good. In Georgia, John Ossoff got massive support from the party apparatus while running a typical centrist campaign, whose main idea was cutting government waste. Ossoff's district voted for Trump over Hillary by only one point. But Ossoff lost to his opponent by four points, so a negative three-point swing. At the end of the day, the Democrats are just following their natural tendency to cater to the interests of their rich donors over their traditional base. Ever since the party replaced labor unions with large corporations and rich individuals as their main source of funding, the party has drifted toward the right. This has been disastrous electorally. The Democrats dominated the House and Senate from the 1930s to the 1990s. But since then, they've just gotten creamed over and over again. If they want to win, they're going to have to appeal to poorer voters, who just so happen to be the vast majority of the population. Well, guys, thanks so much for listening to The Katie Helper Show. We'll see you next Wednesday at 7 p.m. You can always find us on WBAI.org, 99.5 FM. Make sure you become Patreon supporters. Uh, go to patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that interview with Thomas Frank, author of Listen Liberal and What's the Matter with Kansas, please go to patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Make sure you rate and review us on iTunes. And I'm uh, Katie Helps on Twitter. I'm letter K, letter T-H-A-L-P-S. That's Katie Helps. Gabe is... Gabe, G-A-B-E underscore P-A-C-H-E-C-O. And our hashtag is KT Help Show. That's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S-H-O-W. Thanks. Okay. Okay. Edit some of that, please. Oh, yeah, I definitely will. <laughs>